From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In the two years he was on the job, Mark Kennedy was censured by CU Boulder's faculty and on increasingly shaky ground with the Board of Regents. So what's next now that the president of the state's largest university system is resigning? We'll get perspective from CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine. Plus, how will companies handle the transition from working from home to working back in the office? Getting back to normal may be harder than expected. This is like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Then, Claire Boyles was a farmer in rural Colorado when she started writing short stories about economic and environmental justice in the American West and the ties that bind people to land. She'll share how farming and selling her farm shaped her debut collection of short stories, Sight Fidelity. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Just two somewhat rocky years into the job, University of Colorado President Mark Kennedy will be leaving his position. CU regents say they'll begin a search for a new leader for the four-campus system. It's the third largest employer in the state and contributes more than $14 billion annually to Colorado's economy. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine is with us to talk about Monday's announcement of Kennedy's departure. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. Officials said Mark Kennedy will take part in an orderly transition of the presidency. Why is he going? Yeah, it appears Kennedy's pending departure was discussed in two recent executive meetings, and he'll be stepping down in the coming months. Board Chair Glenn Gallegos told me it wasn't one thing or several things that led to this decision, but more of a sense of a change in the new Board of Regents' focus and philosophy. And that change, it came about in November when voters elected a democratically controlled Board of Regents. That's the first one in 42 years. Yeah, Gallegos, he's the Republican chair of the board, said there was no one issue or multiple issues that he could cite for why the system is changing presidents. But he hinted that philosophical differences between the president and the board came to light. Maybe the university deserves someone that that they're more luck step in with with the new board. I think maybe that's the thinking that I read from the board, not that there was one particular issue that knocked the, the ball out of the ballpark or anything like that. Some of Kennedy's stated priorities were strategic planning, diversity, equity and inclusion, online education, fundraising and technology transformation. We know there were people who felt Kennedy didn't do enough on diversity and inclusion, and we'll get into that. But we don't have any detailed criticism about his performance in other important areas like fundraising or technology upgrades. So before we get into that, let's go back a bit. Kennedy was hired in 2019 to replace Bruce Benson, who'd been at the helm since 2008. What was Kennedy's professional background? 
He's a former Republican congressman from Minnesota who, prior to coming to Colorado, he led the University of North Dakota. And there he developed a big strategic plan. It was called the Five Grand Challenges, and it was aimed at investing in research in sectors like big data, rural health, energy and environmental sustainability. And Kennedy, I should note, was the first in his family to graduate from college. Jenny, this was a turbulent hire right from the start. Folks were upset he was named as the sole finalist. Then, before his official hiring, Kennedy came to Colorado for a week of public forums. What happened there? He immediately got pushback from some students and faculties for his political stances from more than a decade ago when he was a Minnesota congressman, like controversial votes on abortion access, and he voted against marriage equality. But Kennedy said his views had changed, and he said he had a firm commitment to prioritizing diversity and said he'd make it one of the university's top strategic priorities. Now, CU faculty had other concerns about funding decreases to the liberal arts at the North Dakota campus and a shift of money to the hard sciences. Is that right? Yeah, the meetings were pretty tense. Faculty here expressed skepticism about his ability to raise money based on his record in North Dakota. Kennedy, in turn, said he'd ultimately raise $50 million, which is a large amount for a university of that size. He was repeatedly pressed on issues like DACA. That's the mechanism allowing some undocumented immigrants to work or study in the U.S. and LGBTQ rights. Kennedy reiterated his support for DACA and LGBTQ people. Tell me a little bit more about how students and faculty reacted to him at these forums. Well, they were pretty raucous. Well, I should say the bolder one was pretty raucous. Again and again, Kennedy would tell crowds of students and faculty that he would keep his focus on four priorities that the regents at the time had set forth, like fiscal responsibility, keeping college affordable and accessible, increasing graduation rates, and elevating research. But the crowds would often return to politics, and he was even booed at the Boulder campus. Jenny, let's turn to his tenure here. What have you been able to find out about why he is leaving? I've not been able to find out a whole lot on what Regent members thought about his performance on the priority areas like online education or fundraising. However, on the issue of diversity and inclusion, that's where we've seen a lot of public concern. So tell us more about that. Well, Some would say he hasn't done enough on diversity and inclusion, and he's also faced criticism for some of the terminology he's used. And here's an example. Last year, while Kennedy talked about the university's need to organize and promote its online education programs, he used the term trail of tears colloquially, and that offended some people. And and the trail of tears, of course, refers to when approximately 60,000 Native American people were forced by state and federal policy to relocate from their land between 1830 and 1850. Kennedy apologized for his use of the term and said he's committed to fostering an inclusive environment at CU where everyone feels like they belong. And just recently, the CU student government voted to reprimand Kennedy for not doing enough on diversity and inclusion. And the Boulder Faculty Assembly censured him on the same issue, right? Yes. One student group has detailed a timeline of what it considered offensive or inappropriate terminology, like using the term drumbeat of activity or failing to adequately address what they call former President Trump's discriminatory actions. And more recently, the CU Boulder Faculty Assembly censured him as well. They cited, and I'm quoting here, a failure of leadership on diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Some faculty, however, voted against the censure. They said it failed to consider the progress Kennedy has made on those issues. And Kennedy himself notes he hired a chief diversity officer and helped raise $5 million to build a diversity fund. But the Board of Regents said that the censure was not a factor in the announcement about transitioning to a new president. That's right. In the statement yesterday, Kennedy mentioned what he called, quoting here, a change in focus or philosophical direction by the board. But we really don't know what that might mean specifically, right? That is right. However, there seems to be a sense that some board members may want a doubling down on diversity and inclusion. Spokesman Ken McConnellog says the board has an annual retreat soon to talk about priorities. Some of the things that we are focused on now, we're always going to be focused on, no doubt. You know, academic success, diversity, inclusion, technology. But, you know, there may be different emphasis areas from the board. They haven't articulated that yet, but I suspect they soon will. Jenny, how are others reacting to Kennedy's departure? Student groups are happy for a change, and former regent Linda Shoemaker voted against Kennedy's hiring. She said Kennedy should have never been hired in the first place based on his rocky reception during his hiring. She says he refused to reach out to students, staff, and faculty after his appointment. And in fact, the CU Faculty Council, which represents all four campuses, passed a resolution of reprimand for failing to consult with faculty on matters, and the university administrators are supposed to do this. Do you think this transition will bring up the issue again of how Colorado governs its flagship university? I do. Colorado has partisan elections for its nine-member Board of Regents, and that's extremely rare. I think it's one of four states. You have to remember college campuses are more politicized now, as are hiring processes for high-profile leaders. And some argue a Board of Regents driven by partisan differences has fueled dysfunction. So we shall see if this latest news renews a call for a different way to run the university. Now, Kennedy's contract officially goes until July of 2022. So what's next? That's right. Well, they'll meet to talk about what direction they want a new leader to go in. They'll work out the details of when Kennedy stops work. They'll appoint an interim leader and then begin a national search for a new president. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. That's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Many office spaces have been empty for more than a year now, but vaccinations mean businesses are starting to reopen and employees who've been working from home are reemerging. So how does all that take shape? Companies are trying to figure it out. CPR business and economy reporter Sarah Mulholland will explore that in the weeks and months ahead. And she starts with how getting back to normal might be harder than expected. Commuting to a spare bedroom in sweatpants has become the norm for many office workers. But that could be coming to an end soon. Companies are facing the big question about when and how to bring those workers back to the office. It's a question that's important for many different parts of the economy. And so far, there are not a lot of solid answers. But there is one thing most companies seem to agree on, and that's flexibility. Just about every company uses the word when they describe their plan to bring workers back to the office. But what does that actually mean? Cindy Fukami, a professor of business management at University of Denver, says it can be hard to pin down. Flexibility for one person is ambiguity for another. So the word flexibility doesn't typically inspire a lot of um, assurance. 
a lot of companies are saying that post-pandemic office life will retain at least some of the freedom that people have grown used to. And absent any guidance from the CDC or the state health department, they're coming up with vastly different ways to approach it. And how employees will react is an open question. You use the word flexibility when there's so much uncertainty that you really can't make hard and fast rules. Many executives are aiming to have employees back in the office by June or July. But they can already see how the pandemic changed the landscape of office work and how that uncertainty is making planning really difficult. This is like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. That's Oshin Hanrahan, CEO of Angie, the Denver-based company that runs Angie's List and Home Advisor. Hanrahan was surprised at how easy it was to transition to remote work. He says his team is questioning a lot of assumptions about the best way to work and where to work. He doesn't think the office will ever go back to what it was before the pandemic. If you think you're going to go back to exactly where you were before, which is, you know, you're going to have 100 percent of your people in the office five days a week, you know, that seems unlikely. Hanrahan wants an office culture. He's just not sure what it will look like at this point. We're going into this with a very open mind, which is let's uh, let's open our offices and let's learn as we go. Julie Cheetah Brown is the chief people officer at Zayo, a telecommunications company based in Boulder. As of now, about 10 percent of employees are opting to come into the office on an average day. Zayo hasn't decided on whether to have some people working 100 percent remote 100 percent of the time. But Cheetah Brown says they're definitely not planning to give up on the office. I don't think there are many people who are craving coming into the office five days a week. But I do think the vast majority of our employees do want to have some core office to go to where they can be with their peers. Like a lot of other companies, what Zayo decides to do has big implications for the way office space is used and if they will need as much of it in the future. Cheetah Brown says the way they use space will definitely change. There'll be an area for people who want dedicated space to come in most days, and there'll be a different shared space for those that want to come in one or two days a week. And there will be more common areas for things like training new hires and getting teams together. There really aren't a lot of things that can't be done at home or in some kind of a flexible manner. Angie and Zayo are trying to allow for a good deal of uncertainty in their future office plans. But some companies are issuing formal guidance. Take Crocs. The company just finished building a brand new headquarters in Broomfield last summer. Roughly a third of that space is being used now. Chief People Officer Shannon Sisler says Crocs is taking a very structured approach to bringing people back. We felt like that was really important so we could be fair and consistent across the organization. To that end, the company created four personas. Explorers, collaborators, connectors, and residents. Explorers will basically be fully remote, while residents will be in the office full-time. Collaborators and connectors, which is most of the corporate staff, will be in the office two to three days a week. Things like what kind of equipment somebody needs to do their jobs or how much the role depends on interacting with other people are all factors in what category a particular role falls under. Sisler says, for example, a receptionist or somebody who works in a photo lab will need to be in the office more than somebody who spends all day on conference calls. There absolutely will be questions as to how we've aligned the roles. And one of the things we've done is really prepared um, frequently asked questions and talking points for all of our people managers so they can sit down and explain the decision making. 
Crocs is rolling out the plan now, so employees know what to expect heading into summer. We definitely want to give people more flexibility, but we also believe that it's good for the long term for people to continue to come in. Sisler says the company is committed to in-person interactions and thinks it's really important to creating and maintaining office culture. For us, this feels like the best direction for the time being. As these companies roll out disparate plans for Colorado workers, DU professor Fukami says they have to think seriously about issues of equity and fairness. There are a lot more questions beyond when to reopen their doors. A lot. Like, exactly who has to come into the office? Is a particular policy disproportionately impacting women with young children? And is commuting every day worth the climate impact? And then there are clerical and safety issues. Who pays for printer cartridges and ergonomically correct chairs for a home office? Zeo's Cheetah Brown says the best thing companies can do is be ready to change their plans. I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen in 2022 and beyond. We just want to be as prepared as possible. After a year in uncharted waters during the pandemic, most companies are simply trying to find the best way forward. And the state's economy depends on that. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. Sarah joins me now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Avery. There are a lot of layers to what working in an office will look like moving forward. The transition back to office space goes beyond the office worker. What are some of the considerations? Yeah, so there's a whole ecosystem of businesses that work behind the scenes to kind of make an office hum. So if you think about the security personnel and the janitorial services, a lot of that staff has been in the office this whole time. So we'll want to be hearing from those people about how they feel about coming back to work with a full office full of people. And then, of course, there's the whole small business community that relies on office workers like uh, lunch shops and after work spots, happy hour bars, all that kind of thing. Um, So, you know, we're wondering how many of those businesses survived the pandemic and do they ever see their customers fully coming back in the same capacity as prior to the pandemic? One of the big unknowns that you touched on is, will there be the same demand for office space in a so-called post-pandemic society? What do we know now? The vacancy rate in downtown Denver is the highest it's been in more than 10 years. And that's according to CBRE. They're a commercial property brokerage. So a lot of companies are reconsidering how they use space and whether or not they even need all of that space that they have. So if you look across the country, there's already a lot of big companies like Target and General Motors, just to name a couple, that have said they're going to be giving up a lot of their office space. So it's a big question as to how all the empty office space in Denver is going to be filled. If a business just decides it doesn't need all that space, they're already locked into their leases. Is subleasing an option for them? Yeah, actually, there's already a ton of sublease space on the market. So there's almost 2 million square feet of sublease space available in downtown Denver right now, which is just a huge amount. Um, And, you know, none of this news is good for landlords. But if you're a business that is looking for some office space, you can probably get a pretty good deal in Denver right now. So as businesses consider bringing employees back into offices, is there a trend that you're seeing in how they might do that? So most companies are saying that they're going to try to preserve at least some of that freedom that employees have gotten used to over the past year or so of working from home. Um, and, And hybrid is the big buzzword right now. So a hybrid model could mean 
bringing employees back to the office maybe two or three days a week. Or there could be some roles that can be fully remote and other roles that are partially remote. Um, But honestly, a lot of this just depends on what happens when companies actually try to institute these plans in the months ahead. And it's not just businesses thinking about all this. The city of Denver launched a campaign last week to help businesses bring their employees back into the office. What's that about? Yeah, so the Downtown Denver Partnership is working with the city and RTD and some other um, stakeholders to try to encourage business leaders to bring their workers back to the office um, in a responsible manner, of course. And there's actually a pledge that this campaign is asking companies to sign, um, which would commit them to at least trying to bring people back to the office in some capacity um, starting as soon as this week. But it's not clear how many companies have actually signed on to that pledge yet. Sarah, as we said, you are continuing to report on all this. You want to hear from office workers, right? Yes, absolutely. We definitely want to hear from people who are going back into the office or maybe who aren't going back into the office about how they feel their companies are handling this transition and about what they like or don't like about coming back to the office. Um, So listeners can email coloradomatters at CPR.org or leave a voice message at CPR's main number 303-871-9191, extension 4480. Sarah, I am looking forward to your stories. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks, Avery. CPR business and economic reporter Sarah Mulholland. As we take a break, Denver singer Devin Blake-Jones is hitting a high note. America noted, voted to keep him on NBC's The Voice Monday night in a make-or-break round. The Aurora native works at a tech firm but dreams of a singing career. Here's Devin's performance of the Backstreet Boys' Shape of My Heart. Looking back on the things I've done. When we come back, short stories from a former farmer in rural Colorado who writes about economic and environmental justice in the American West and the ties that bind people to land. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Claire Boyles began writing short stories while she farmed outside Greeley, Colorado. She and her family sold their farm eight years ago, but she kept writing. Sight Fidelity, Boyles' debut collection of short stories, comes out in June. Claire, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Your stories are rooted in rural Colorado and Nevada. Before we get into your fiction, I want to know how these places shaped you. Tell me about why you bought a farm near Greeley in 2008. Uh, My husband and I grew up around our grandparents' small-scale farms, and we were just interested in um, growing things and growing food and being part of a local food shed. And so... Uh, when we were looking for land with water rights, we uh, found land out there east of Greeley near Gill, sort of north of north of Cozy. And what did you grow? Uh, we grew vegetables of really all kinds of vegetables and specialty grown cut flowers. And we raised a few chickens and pigs as well. Now, you've lived in Colorado since you were a teenager. So what did farming teach you about this place that you didn't already know? Uh, Farming really opened my eyes to the ways that um, I'd say like state policies and government policies and the things that I maybe knew about but hadn't been paying close attention to really mattered for people and families and farmers and uh, relationships. So you bought this farm just before the recession began in 2008. Tell me a little bit about your journey on this farm. Um, I would call those years, I mean, looking back on them, I think we think of them as a really beautiful struggle. Um, Mm. They were difficult financially, um, but they were wonderful in terms of the community we were able to build around the farm. We had really supportive customers and it it felt really, um, it was just a really special thing to be able to grow that kind of food. So tell me how your collection of short stories, Site Fidelity, grew out of those experiences as a farmer. Um, I started writing a blog. I mean, it was 2008 when we started farming. That's kind of what people did. And um, I just realized that a lot of the things that I was writing about in terms of, you know, land use and how we relate to land um, maybe could be explored more broadly and in more interesting ways in fiction. So rather than just writing about our experience on the blog, I started um, writing about those things in short stories. So let's dive into your fiction. The title of your collection, Site Fidelity, it comes from an ecological concept. In that sense, it's a population's tendency to return to a place. The story Ledgers is about Nora. She's an ornithologist who comes home to the farm where she grew up to help take care of her father after he's had a stroke. How does Site Fidelity of the Gunnison Sage Grouse drive Nora in that story? Um, I think it, it resonate, this concept of site fidelity resonated with me, um, in that places that I've lived have become very close to my heart. And also just in the sense that if you love a place that much and you continue to return to it and it is somehow damaged or can't support you anymore, that's just a really dangerous, you know, the Gunnison sage grouse does not adapt well if their breeding lacks that they return to are damaged. Um, and so it just, it just became sort of a, a metaphor that made sense for the human connection to the land that we live on. And I think Nora, Uh, is maybe in that sense closer to my own, uh, closer to who I am maybe in my own thoughts than a lot of my other characters are. So in this story, Nora is really driven by protecting this lek or this breeding ground for the Gunnison sage grouse, and she's really concerned that damage to it by farming or by grazing um, 
could really damage their the, the species and its ability to survive. Would you read a bit of that story for us? Sure. Um, the passage I've chosen is a passage where Nora is trying to get a rancher named Henson who uh, bought Nora's family's land to protect the Gunnison sage grouse who live there. So this is a section from Ledger's. The land didn't come with an easement. The sunset was fading. Henson turned on the porch light, which tells me your dad knew better than to invite the government up here, give up good grazing for the sake of some ridiculous birds. Pop left that land alone because it was the right thing to do, I said. He loves those birds. Henson snorted. He was dodging the government or I'll eat my hat. No easement, no mandate. Old ranchers are all the same. You know that, or you should. I knocked my empty beer can over when I stood up to leave. I'm sorry. I don't really want to say no to you, Nora, Henson said. The apology seemed sincere. I've put all I have into this place. I won't risk any limited use. Tears prickled the back of my eyes as I drove back toward Gunnison because Henson was right. I knew better about Pop. He only saved the birds to indulge me. The minute I left him, he let them go. Tell me a little bit more about that tension that you're driving at when Henson tells Nora all old ranchers are the same and she realizes that the reason her father had put some energy into protecting the birds while she was there is just because he cared about her. So there's this tension between the economics of surviving off the land and caring about the land and its broader ecosystems. Yeah, I mean, I think that none of these issues are simple. They're complicated and they're thorny and they're tangled together with not just human relationships to the land, but also like economic survival and humans relationships, you know, the family's relationships with each other and what people care about and what they might choose to care about based on what the people they love can teach them and show them. In Ledger's, Nora feels the weight of protecting these birds whose habitat is threatened. Claire, how much of that is a weight that you also feel telling these stories? Um, in Ledger's, one of the, the real-life stories that inspired Ledger's is actually something I included in the story itself, that the Blue Mesa Reservoir filled right on top of a Gunnison sage-grouse lek. And the birds returned every single year and just tried and failed to mate on top of the ice of the reservoir. And i that's just one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. I do feel that loss. And I think, um, I think it's an important loss. And the loss of biodiversity, should it, it does feel very sad to me. And I think it concerns me quite a bit. It's a really vivid picture. Let's talk about yeah. some of the other characters in your other stories. Some of these stories trace the lives of families and three sisters, Ruth, Mano, and Teresa, who changed her name to Sister Agnes Mary when she became a nun. They're actually loosely based on your own family, right? They are. Um, my dad's mom, my granny Ruth, is. Uh, she was a, my actual grandmother. And her sister, uh, Mano, lived with her when I was young. We actually called her Grandma Aunt Mano. Uh, they have a number of other sisters, two of whom are Catholic nuns. And so the three sisters are sort of based on my remembrance of who these women were, but also who I've invented them to be. Um, there's a great photo of them, not the nuns, but uh, most of the rest of the sisters in from the late 60s or early 70s. They're in these fantastic dresses with cat eye glasses around my grandma's kitchen table, which is covered in 
liquor bottles and coffee mugs and jars of olives and various things. And they're just, they're probably about my age now, just middle-aged ladies having a time. And I just found them inspirational uh, in my life and also then made up stories. There's this photo that it captures that that kind of moment for them and that moment that you can see a real personality, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like a glimpse into a side of them I didn't know, you know, that I didn't see in my grandmother as a child that made them more real for me and made me want to think about who they really were, I suppose. Oh, that's really fun. So the three of them, they care deeply about the environment. They care deeply about their families, but they care in different ways. And for Sister Agnes Mary, it comes to a head in the story, Sister Agnes Mary in the spring of 2012. Would you share some of that story? Sure. Um, the section I'm going to read from this story is when the three sisters, Ruth, Mano, and Sister Agnes Mary, who are all at this point in their 60s and 70s, have just discovered that there's going to be a a natural gas drill site right behind the church school playground. We should call our senators, Mano says. Mano is their activist, member of the Sierra Club, avid reader of Rachel Carson and Edward Abbey, make signs, pick at the corners. Ruth pokes sister in the ribs, then points toward the ceiling. What does your husband have to say? Ruth means God, of course. She likes to tease sister. It's lighthearted, this teasing, Ruth's love language. Sister shrugs, man a few words, she says. Mano and Ruth giggle. The silent treatment, Mano says, sounds like all three of my marriages. Maybe he thinks that after all these years, he shouldn't have to tell you what to do, Ruth says. Maybe he thinks you should just know. Well, I don't. It's maddening. Sister detangles the rosary beads from her fingers, wraps them loosely around her wrist instead. Her sisters are having fun. She tries to relax. Mano nods. That exact kind of maddening caused two of my three divorces. She can't divorce God, Ruth says. Her sisters look directly at her. Their dresses rustle. Their shifting weight makes the old kneelers settle and pop. You two, sister says, are really snagging my mitts. This makes all three of them laugh. Their departed mother's favorite way to chastise them. <laughs> snagging my nits. I like that as a phrase. Thanks. <laughs> this story, it is, it's a lonely one. Sister Agnes Mary, she can't hear God's voice, and she's crosswise with church leadership, and even with kids who have grown up to be adults that she used to teach, and now they're looking to put this oil and gas leasing in her backyard. Um but there is that scene where she comes home to find her sisters halfway through a jar of olives. So you really work in that photograph that you have of your family into this story. Tell me a little bit about how their relationship kind of buoys the loneliness in the story. Um, I mean, I think that sibling relationships are, for me, they've been really essential in my life. And I think all three of the sisters in the story managed to support each other through really difficult formative times in their lives in different stages in the collection. Um, but it's not simple. You know, they have rivalries and jealousies and they, they can say cutting things to each other. And that <laughs> rings true in terms of my experience and being part of a family. You know, there's, there's all sorts of emotions surrounding it. And I, I wanted to try to capture what that means for people throughout the course of a life, um, not just in childhood, but also through adulthood. 
And you drew so much from your real life. How did you balance the real life personalities and fictionalizing them? Um, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't really know what Ruth and Mano and uh, sis, the, the real life sisters would think of the way I've fictionalized them. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I really used them the way the stories that I was trying to tell. I think I built, I built my characters around those stories. Um, no one in my real family ever had a baby alone in a ghost town in Nevada. And, you know, no one ever made misunderstood protest art out of dead fish from a fish kill. Those are, you know, events that made sense in my stories that that didn't actually happen in, in real life that these somewhat real life characters um, go through. Yeah. And it is clear in reading your book that you care passionately about climate change, about caring for land and ecosystems. But in your stories, like you said, land issues are not black and white. How do you think living on a farm and in a farming community shaped the way that you have conversations and tell stories about politicized issues like oil and gas and climate change? Um, you know, living in a rural community, you really do rely on your neighbors for a lot of things. Um, you know, when there's weather or, you know, you just don't, you ran out of milk or something, there's just no easy way to fix even a small problem. Um, and, you know, like anywhere else, rural people are sort of all over the political spectrum, even if they do tend to trend conservative, at least in Weld County, they do. Um, but I, I guess I just, these issues are so complicated, we have to try to address them. And I think having a respectful re relationship with people, um, even when you disagree with them, just helps work together. When everybody's trying to find meaningful solutions, I think it's actually fairly easy to be respectful in disagreements. Um, and that's what I found to be true when we lived out east of Greeley, for sure. And I'd love to know a little bit about what life is like after owning the farm. What part of it have you taken with you into your life since? Um, I think neither, no one in my family, my husband or my kids or I would trade those years for anything. I think it gave us a sense of... Um, you know, self-reliance and connection to the outdoors that we, you know, continue to take with us even now that we live in town for sure. Um, and I also think, you know, it was a big failure to lose the farm. Um, and we were able to recover and find our feet. And I think that has been really important moving forward, especially in writing, which is often a mm. lot of rejection, was a lot of rejection. It's just helped me push through. I think a few things, you know, you can feel and it's not the end of the world, even if it's very public and big. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some really incredible experiences. Thank you for sharing, Claire. Claire Boyles lives in Loveland, Colorado. Her debut collection of short stories, Sight Fidelity, comes out in June. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. At a high school in Colorado Springs, the entire staff has to reapply for their jobs in order to keep them. The school is Mitchell High, and the staff includes custodians, teachers, paraeducators, and administrators. Here's KRCC's Abigail Beckman. Mitchell was placed on the state's accountability clock four years ago. That clock is a countdown to improve or face intervention by the State Department of Education. The deadline to get scores up is five years, though, so staff thought they still had time to tweak things. And then all of a sudden, we just all hear, 
we're terminating everybody's position. If you want to reapply for it, you can. And that was it. That's an employee at Mitchell who has asked to remain anonymous for fear of retribution. Dan Hoff with District 11 says making the change before the deadline may help prevent the state from taking the school over. But several staff members say when the news of the change came, they weren't given a direct reason. That hurt my soul. I mean, I don't even know how else to put it because it's a pandemic. (laughs) We're trying to figure out how to get through. The stress level of everyone is so high because we want our kids to do well. And now they're going to tell us that they're firing all of us and not even give us an answer or a reason. State data shows Mitchell has not met academic achievement standards for the entire four years it's been on the clock. The employee I spoke to says a big part of that is the number of kids who opt out of state testing. The school puts a lot of effort into getting students at Mitchell ready for careers that don't require a degree, but the state doesn't weigh that as heavily. Regardless, Hoff says any gains made in the past few years haven't happened quickly enough. But if we're looking to blame somebody, we need to all be looking in the mirror a little bit, right? Because there's enough culpability to go around. It's not unheard of to release staff members due to poor academic standards. Van Scholes is the president of a Colorado, a research and advocacy organization focused on improving public education. He says turning around a high school requires aggressive changes. Scholes says similar actions in a few Denver and Pueblo area schools have seen limited success. The biggest factor, he says, is leadership. It's a little bit like real estate. It's location, location, location. And high schools really depend upon having a leadership team and or a principal that can manage significant cultural change in terms of the organization and set it at the right pace. The district has recently hired a new principal. The job description called for applicants who wanted to work in an urban school setting and had proven experience achieving results, among other things. But the question remains if that will be enough to keep the sense of community that already exists between staff and students. All of that's being shaken up in a severe way. That's Joe Schott, who heads the Colorado Springs Education Association. The teachers' union, which is an underwriter of KRCC, is going to bat for its members. It's asking the district to stick to precedent and offer those who are eligible jobs somewhere in District 11. Three-quarters of the students at Mitchell qualify for free or reduced-price lunch. It also has the highest percentage of minority students of all high schools in District 11. Schott says the district has an institutional bias about Mitchell and has neglected it for decades because of its demographics. If you're working toward a middle-class, white-dominant view of education and the structures built around it, and you have a different community that's being judged by those standards, you're not serving that community. D11's Dan Hoff says the focus is purely on the students, though. Because we owe it to them to give them both the supports and the academic rigor for them to be successful after high school. So lots of critics, lots of opinions. What I would do is invite people to be part of the solution and to jump in. The anonymous source I spoke to within the school says it's not that simple. Our kids, we may be the only consistent, healthy adult in their life. They have different struggles that other kids may not have. And not because their families don't love them, but because their families are going through things too. And so to take their teachers away, 
How is that what's best for kids? As the school year winds down, both the state's accountability clock and standardized testing are on hold due to the pandemic. But administrators are still moving forward with the changes, and many teachers and staff at Mitchell are deciding on their next move. D11 says the changes in staff at the school will help work toward a focused instructional plan, much of which has been in place for several years. I'm Abigail Beckman, KRCC News. A man who carried on his father's legacy of barbecue and helping others for three decades has died. Bruce Randolph Jr. was 94 years old. He opened a restaurant in Boulder in 1980 and named it in honor of his father. My father was Daddy Bruce Randolph. Uh, He came to Colorado in 1957. I was out here, and so I sent for him to come to Colorado. And he entered the restaurant business in 1965. And from there, uh, he became famous by feeding the poor people every Thanksgiving. He started preparing a large amount of food for the poor, the lame, the main, and the blind. And long as you were poor, this was before the homeless, became so prominent in the news. And so uh, he would invite all of the poor people over for a Thanksgiving meal. And he also did it for Christmas. And he would have Easter egg hunts for the kids on Easter, those three days. Bruce Randolph Jr. shared his story in an oral history interview for Boulder's Carnegie Library in 1997. Like his father, he was known for his kind heart. Any homeless person, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to be homeless. You can be, you can have a home and sometimes you're hungry and broke and you just don't have any money. Uh, my policy is always if someone comes in and and they're hungry and they don't have any money, I'm going to always give them some food. That, that's my policy. I don't believe in subsidizing anyone but I believe in helping people. Before he owned his own barbecue restaurant, Randolph Jr. worked in Denver as a barber. It was those community connections that had a profound impact on his life. I was in D.C. when Martin Luther King gave that speech, I Have a Dream. Really? I was, I was one of the uh, representatives that went from Denver to the march on Washington. Oh, that was in 1963. Really? That was my emancipation. Oh, that was one of the high points in my life. I think two things that emancipated me was that that march on Washington and when I got my degree out at Colorado Christian College in 1974. Uh, those two things was my emancipation that, that made me free. Now, I used to have an inferiority complex about my education, then I used to have an inferiority complex about being colored or black or Negro or whatever, Afro-American. But after 1963, I was emancipated through through the civil rights, the whole civil rights movement culminating in the March on Washington with King giving the I have a dream. And I, I have cut his hair. I, I've, he's been in my barbershop really? in Denver. Ooh. 
And there I met all of the civil rights people because our church was the center of the civil rights movement, New Hope Baptist Church. From 1954 on up through the whole movement, everyone and anyone that was in the civil rights movement came through New Hope, (laughs) 23rd and Ogden in Denver, Colorado. And while there has been a new reckoning in the past year with racism and inequality, he shared his simple philosophy during this interview in 1997. I hear people talk about racism. That's a word I really don't like. I think we should be talking about relationships. It all depends on relationship, how you relate to people. And the Bible teaches you how to have good relationship. Say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You, you, you be nice to people, people will be nice to you. Bruce Randolph Jr. died May 1st. He was 94. There will be a memorial for him on Monday. Our thanks to the Carnegie Library for Local History Boulder for that audio. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.